Today's reading is from Exodus 5, verses 1 through 9. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of the Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then the Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, and that is why they are crying out, Let us go make sacrifices to our God. Make, them, make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the, uh, the announcement sheet or the, the bulletin is a handout that if you've not already found it and have been following along through the order of worship, there's, uh, it's in there. And beside it is an outline that you can use. As we go through our study of uh, Exodus chapter 5, we're going to begin with verses 1, which is so ironic. We couldn't get out of chapters 3 and 4 like for five weeks. Now we're going to cover about six chapters in 30 minutes. But, uh, but that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at the first nine plagues of, um, of the story of Exodus. We'll look at the tenth plague, the Passover plague, this next, uh, this next week. And um, I'm going to try to pull all of that together in such a way that it really changes the way that we think about not only our life today, but the, even the mission that God has given us as we live in this city. And as uh, we get ready to study those first nine plagues today, we're going to ask you to bow your heads as we ask God to bless us, as we always do. Our Father, whose name is Yahweh, a holy fire, full of compassion and grace, an all-powerful, never-failing love, and blindingly beautiful forever and ever. We confess, Father, and repent in our hearts this morning. We also recognize that you are God in heaven and on earth. We pray that your kingdom come and be done on earth and in the hearts of all men as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we do confess, and we do repent, and we watch for you to change us in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls. And as we study this long passage out of Exodus, we ask that you, the creator of everyone in here, sovereign over our lives, that you will truly give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And this we pray with all of our heart, in your power to make it so, and in the name of Jesus, 
Amen. As human beings, there is a question that all of us have to answer, whether directly or indirectly, intentionally or unintentionally, quickly or slowly, now or later, that gives direction and frames the way that we live our life. It is the question that also provides a framework for these ten plagues. In Exodus chapter 5, at the very beginning of that chapter, Pharaoh asks a question. Who is the Lord? Ask, uh, literally, he's asking, who is Yahweh? Forty years later, in a second generation of the sons of Israel, as they prepare to finally go into the promised land, Moses reminds them of the answer to that question. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, and then in, in verse uh, uh, 39, he says, You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. Say this with me. There is no other. The journey between the question and the answer can be difficult and painful and dangerous. And it can be deadly as it we read it was for Pharaoh. In Hebrew, the, the ten plagues are known as the Aser Ham Makot, the ten blows, or the ten strikes. The destruction and the devastation that comes upon Egypt with all of our technology to be able to see current battlefields in the world the destruction and the devastation that is brought upon Egypt in that day is beyond our ability to imagine it. This whole section of Exodus is a personal contest between Yahweh and Pharaoh, and it feels like the language of rapid dominance, the language of shock and awe. And the question that is being answered is, who is truly God? And at the same time, the ten plagues are also called signs and wonders. In chapter 7, God says, Though I multiply my signs and my wonders in Egypt, the way that God refers to these, these, these blows or these strikes that come upon the land of Egypt, signs and wonders. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34, Moses, reminding the people about these events 40 years earlier, says, has any God ever tried to make for himself one nation out of another nation? By testings, by signs and wonders. We all know what a sign is. We usually think of a sign, especially if we're thinking in the Bible, as a miracle. That's the big word that John uses in the Gospel of John to describe those miracles that Jesus does. But the signs are never to call attention to themselves. We never do that even in our modern world when we come to a sign. When we see a sign that says deer crossing, we think about a reality, deer crossing, the danger of it, the road, up, up the road a bit. It's the reality beyond itself. God calls these plagues signs because the, 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 the answer, the meaning, the focus is not the plague itself. 
But the reality down the road from the plague, the one that brings the plague and is showing his power. But he also calls it a wonder. He also calls it a wonder. A wonder brings astonishment. You're seeing something where jaws drop and eyes pop in such a way that you're speechless. And we see that these are blows and strikes. But they are signs. And they are wonders. And so Moses in the story and Aaron say to one of the most powerful men in all of the world, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go. You know, when you watch, how many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? I mean, 100%, right? And every time Moses goes before Pharaoh in the movie, what does he say? Let my people go. Which is true, but he never says that in the Bible. He says, let my people go in order that they may celebrate me or worship me or serve me. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness, that they may worship me. It's not the typical language that a fellow like Pharaoh is used to. There's none of the deferential language that you would expect with somebody as powerful and, and as and absolute as Pharaoh. He is. He's an absolute monarch, which would make the niceties a little bit a waste of time. There is no appealing to the principles of human freedom. These people were not purchased. They're not captives of war. They were immigrants living in the land who have been oppressed and turned into a commodity. They have been commodified. They have been turned into a human brick-making machine for the purposes of the empire. And God knows that they are suffering, and He will make good on the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey, a promise that was made four centuries earlier to Abraham. And Moses and Aaron have had the gall to walk before His throne, in His palace, in His land, and in His empire, and to say, let the people go in order to worship their God. And Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? Who is God that I should obey Him? And besides, I would never do that anyway. And then Pharaoh, in an act of flexing his own power, flexing his own muscle, he orders that the sons of Israel, the people, the Hebrew people, to no longer be given any straw in which to make their bricks. The idea being harder work, wearier bodies, exhausted minds, that this tends to deafen the ears to dangerous freedom talk. Uh, nearly 50 years ago to the day, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., April 3rd, 1968, preached his last sermon. You know the sermon? It was entitled, I've Been to the Mountaintop, where he, he references the life of Moses. And in the middle of that sermon, he says, you know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, 
He had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. And what was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. End of quote. And just like that, the sons of Israel, they turn against Moses and Aaron, and they begin to fight among themselves. And Moses, once again, feels that sting of failure that he had felt 40 years earlier. But God comes to him and reminds him that although his ancestors had known him as El Shaddai, God Almighty, and that they even knew his name Yahweh, they, unlike Moses, had never seen the self-sustaining fire in the bush, that frozen lightning on holy ground. And he says at the beginning of chapter 6, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of the country. Then God tells Moses to say to the sons of Israel, Remind them that I am God. I'm Yahweh. Three times, I am Yahweh. And then he says, and don't forget to tell them these seven things. He says, I will, number one, bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Number two, I will bring you out from the slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bring you to the land of promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I'm going to give that land to you as a possession. But the Hebrew actually literally says, the people were out of breath. They were just hands on their knees and bent over, hands on their hips, weary and despondent. And they do not listen. And this is perhaps why the first three plagues also fall on Israel. Blow number one. The water turns to blood. God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh at the beginning of chapter 7. And here we see, again, this mentioning that begins all the way in, in the beginning chapters of Exodus. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There are uh, three Hebrew words that, that are translated in our English Bible as, 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 as hardening. And these three words can mean to harden, or to toughen, or to make heavy. And the question that people have been debating about for you know, years and years and years and years, what does it mean that Pharaoh's heart was hardened? Three times we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In chapter 8, twice, and in chapter 9. Three times we read that simply his heart was hard. Chapter 7, all three times. We also read that God hardened his heart. What in the world does it mean, this hardening of the heart? Does it mean that God made him unable and, and without any chance of responding faithfully to God? I don't think so. Some, some weeks ago, Ellen and I, on a Friday night, are watching a, a recent movie that came out, The Darkest Hour. It's about uh, the entrance of Britain into World War II. Gary Oldham, one of my favorite actors, plays Winston Churchill. 
And during this period of time in which the, the movie is depicting, uh, England is, is at a crossroads with Hitler. Paris has fallen. The rescue at Dunkirk is taking place. The country is divided as to what to do with Hitler. That menace and that evil Nazi empire. No one wants the carnage to be repeated that they had all remembered 21 years earlier in World War I. Churchill is now the prime minister. Neville Chamberlain has been dismissed. Uh, Churchill is now the prime minister. And he knows that his country is divided. There are those that know that Hitler is a threat that needs to be confronted. And there are those who lost and lost and lost in World War I that want to just hold him off with a 10-foot pole. And there's this line in which uh, Churchill says, it's hard to negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And here comes the speech. Over the radio. Divided house. And he begins to speak. And the next thing you know, England is being united. And not only that, the words of Churchill are beginning to steal, S-T-E-E-L, the hearts of the people. They had hearts of steel against the Nazi enemy. In fact, you could say that their hearts were hardened against the foe. An exterior force comes and the fabric of our heart is exposed. There are events that all of us have experienced maybe in our own life, in the lives of others. There are events that come that either turn us mean and hard or they soften us and mellow us. And what Egypt and Pharaoh in particular experiencing is this exterior force. The God who created not only the heavens and the earth, but created Egypt itself is coming to be recognized. And Pharaoh's heart becomes like steel to what he considers to be this foe. Well, Moses and Aaron show the staff of God, turning to a serpent. The Egyptian uh, magicians are able to duplicate it. They do the same thing. Only this time, the staff of God turned into a serpent swallows all of the other Egyptian serpents. And Pharaoh goes, see. And his heart is hardened. The next day, Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh in the morning as he comes to the water. And all the water in Egypt is turned to blood for seven days. But the magicians are able to duplicate that act. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. So here comes blow number two, which is the invasion of frogs. It's the same formula. Let my people go that they may serve me. And the frogs come up out of the water. They cover the land. Again, the magicians are able to duplicate, but Moses and Aaron do something that is completely different. And a crack in, the, in Pharaoh's facade begins to open up a little bit. And Pharaoh now has to acknowledge that Yahweh is real. 
And at the same time, as people begin to see that Pharaoh is not invulnerable and he needs Yahweh to take the frogs away to remove them. And the stench of the water turned to blood becomes the stench of piles and piles and piles of frogs that are just everywhere. And Pharaoh hardens his heart, which brings a third strike or blow. Gnats or perhaps lice. You lose both ways. There is no warning. Just the plague. Chapter 8. The dust of Egypt becomes gnats or lice. The magicians this time can't do it. They can't duplicate what it is that Moses and Aaron have done by the power of God. And they say to Pharaoh, this is not anything we've ever seen before. This is the finger of God. Blow number four, the swarms of flies. My wife is a world-class fly hater. A fly, and she comes from a long line of fly haters. Her dad was a fly hater, you know. Cannot stand one fly in the house. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh as he comes to the water. Let my people go that they may serve me. No, not going to happen. So swarms of flies sweep through Egypt, clouds of flies. Imagine a billion flies inside of your house. The land of Egypt is laid to waste, but this time not in Goshen. Not in Goshen. Pharaoh relents. The insects depart. But then he hardens his heart and the people are not released. Blow number five. This pestilence that comes on all of the animals. Chapter nine opens with the order to let the people go that they can serve Yahweh. It's not going to happen. Severe, deadly pestilence falls on all of the cattle. All of the horses. All of those donkeys. All of those camels. All of the poor flocks of Egypt. But we're told in chapter 9, verse 6, not one animal of the sons of Israel suffered or died. Pharaoh hardened in his heart and did not let people go. Blow number 6 are the blister boils. Without warning again, Moses goes to a kiln in an oven out there in public and does something really ominous. He takes soot from the kiln or the oven and he throws it up into the air and scatters it into the air and there is a burning skin disease. It's burning. Note, it came from a kiln or an oven. It burns the skin, and literally in the description, in the original language, boils begin to sprout. Sprout! Where, on, on men and animals throughout Egypt. The disease, specifically this time, mentions falling on the magicians. And they cannot even stand up before Moses and Aaron. But Moses is not going to, Pharaoh is not going to listen. He does not relent. Blow number seven. Hail and fire and rain and thunder. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may serve me. God says, Pharaoh is still exalting himself against God and against Israel. And a never before seen 
God created hail comes upon the land, but again, not in Goshen. And this time God, though, allows the Egyptians to save themselves. Those that believe that this is God at work take cover. They're told, take shelter. Put your animals inside. You'll survive. Others do not heed the word of God and are destroyed. Blow number eight, the locusts. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. The locusts come. In our own country, we have devastating experiences in the agricultural world because of these locusts. The locusts come, they devour everything that the hail did not destroy. And Pharaoh says, we have sinned. I have sinned. The sons of Israel are in the right. The Lord sends a wind from the west to drive off the locusts, but his heart becomes hardened again. And the servants of Pharaoh come to him at this time and say, Pharaoh, what in the world are you doing? Do you not see that this is destroying us? Pharaoh's heart is hardened, which brings blow number nine, which is the darkest darkness, a felt darkness. And it's unannounced. The third and the sixth and the ninth of the plagues are unannounced. It is a felt darkness, and people felt trapped and chained inside of it. We're told that for three days they could not even move. It was so dark, but there was light in Goshen. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and I think his mind comes unhinged. He says, get away from me. Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, you're right. I shall never, I shall never see your face again. The desire to be God is the greatest human liability. We who sit in these pews, the hubris of being a human being is our greatest liability. There's an old joke that goes something like this. Do you know what the difference is between God and Mark? God never thought he was Mark. I, I mean, you could fit any name in there, right? After the sixth plague, the author of Exodus is compelled to comment on them. These plagues come that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Secondly, it is to show you my power. And then number three, that my name may be proclaimed throughout the earth. It's about recognizing that God is God. Peter Kreeft, who is a, a British theologian, he was commenting on the conversion of C.S. Lewis on a, a 
PBS special some years ago, and the, the PBS special was addressing the question of God. And commenting on C.S. Lewis's conversion, he said, when Lewis first converted, he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy because the first thing that happened to him was the realization that God was God and that Lewis was not his own God. That the real God, the true God, was a transcendental interferer barging into Lewis's life and saying, you're not God. I am God. End of quote. If there was anything practical that you might begin doing today, it would be to pray that God cultivate a proper sense of humility in your heart. The, the problem is that God does not meet us in those places of our life where we have not repented. Repentance is, 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 is bringing down the walls of that hard heart. Repentance is not just technically going in a different direction, even though that's what it is. Repentance, theologically speaking, is where you recognize that you, being the God of your life, has not only brought some devastating things and sometimes some, some debilitating uh, in life kinds of things into your life and into your presence, but there's been collateral damage to all of the people around you. And recognizing that that is the result of who I am when I want to be the God of my own little world. And repentance is recognizing that God does not just choose to, to forgive you, but he also demands to interfere in your life. And to remind you that life goes well. And that life is, is full of blessing even though it doesn't get easier. But that life makes sense when you recognize that you're not God, but He is. And we want to give you a chance to make that true in your life. You know, we're going to be singing a song here in just a minute. And you know what this song is? This is a, so, songs of worship are also songs of repentance. Because to worship, and I mean to truly worship in spirit and in truth, you are worshiping. That is, you are attributing worth to God in a way that that's not you. You're not attributing that worth to you. You're recognizing that that's God. And everything that I am, everything that I experience, everywhere that I'm going to be today and tomorrow and for all of eternity is because of God. And the, the ability to sleep at night because the forgiveness that has swept through our life like those flies and locusts have destroyed everything, has destroyed the guilt in your life. That's what Christ does. But you have to recognize that He is God in heaven and on earth and he, there is no one on earth beside, there is no other God beside Him. And so when we worship, we're repenting and saying we're not God. You are.
But it's also an opportunity for you who have never formally said what I want is for you to be my God. And I want to accept what you have done on my behalf that I could never do. And this is where the compassion and the grace, and we'll talk about so much more of that this next week. But I accept, I want in my life what it is that you offer in in Christ's kingdom. Come into my heart, come into my life, change everything. You confess that he is Lord and there are no others. You, You repent like we've been talking about. You participate in what Christ did in the death and burial and resurrection through baptism. Sins washed away, gift of the Holy Spirit. God's going to equip you and empower you to become the human being that he always wanted you to be and the one that you really want to be in the deepest part of your heart. He makes you a part of his family, never leaves your side, with you in those dark moments, the valley with you on the mountaintop, And it begins, though, by letting those hard walls down. Here's the thing. A hard heart is either softened or it's broken. This morning is an opportunity to break down those walls and allow the blessedness and the glory of God to come streaming into your heart in ways that you've never experienced. And if that describes you this morning, you have time this morning to do it. We have shepherds down here at the front. Let's raise the roof off of this place this morning. Amen? Amen. God is good. Amen? Amen. And life is hard. Amen? (laughs) But God makes sense. And Christ is the difference. And the Spirit gives you the power to do what you need to do, to live a life that reflects His presence all the time, to get rid of the gossip and to get rid of the the, the anger and to get rid of the frustration and to get rid of of the greed and the materialism and the, the lusts. Do it this morning while we stand and sing. Hide me away, O Lord.